tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. You are isolated on a remote plantation in the crawling Amazon jungle, and an immense army of ravenous ants is closing in on you, swarming in to eat you alive, a deadly black army from which there is no escape. This is the introduction to Escape's version of Leiningen versus the Ants, a short story by Carl Stevenson. Like Three Skeleton Key from the last episode, Leiningen versus the Ants was a popular favorite, and it was presented multiple times on Escape. Also like Three Skeleton Key, it's one of Escape's infrastructural adventures, featuring a node in a network of global commerce that comes under threat by non-human multitudes. Not rats this time, but ants. Like last time, I'll be adding concrete details about the setting to listen to the story in a new way. In the process, we'll consider another term besides the Anthropocene that's been offered to describe the geological epoch we inhabit. The story takes place in Brazil, and it begins when a commissioner pays a visit to a plantation owned by a European named Leiningen. The commissioner describes Leiningen as... A great hulk of a man with bristling gray hair, bulky nose and pale eyes. His entire appearance somehow suggested an aging and shabby eagle. The commissioner has come to notify Leiningen that a swarm of army ants are approaching his plantation. Leiningen doesn't seem disturbed by this news and replies, Commissioner, even a herd of crocodiles couldn't drive me from this plantation of mine. But these aren't creatures you can fight. They're, they're an elemental force, a gigantic catastrophe. Ten miles long, two miles wide, ants, nothing but ants, and each one as big as your thumb and each of them a fiend from hell. Unless you clear out at once, there'll be nothing left of you but a skeleton picked as clean as your own plantation will be. Leiningen says that he intends to stay and fight the ants, and he tells the commissioner the motto that he lives by. In the three years I've been here, I've met and defeated more than one catastrophe. Flood, drought, the plague. Events which caused many of my neighbors to flee for their lives. No, Commissioner, all my life I have lived with one creed. 
The human brain needs only to become fully aware of its powers to conquer even the elements. The commissioner, certain that Leiningen is doomed, leaves the plantation saying, You don't know these ants. I tell you, you don't know these ants. Now, in my reading of the story, I want to set aside Leiningen's boastful motto. The human brain needs only to become fully aware of its powers to conquer even the elements. And take this other line of dialogue as an alternative. The commissioner's emphatic warning. You don't know these ants. I tell you, you don't know these ants. I want to hear that line as though the commissioner were talking to us as much as to Leiningen. How might our experience of the broadcast change if we tried to better know these ants? We might start by listening to some ants, and I'm going to be helped on this episode by some recordings by the great sound artist Jana Winderen. Winderen made this recording by placing a microphone inside an anthill. Field recordings like this one provide a sonic depiction of the world that wasn't available to the producers of Escape. Radio at that time was a studio art, and the far-flung places depicted for a show like Escape were created with musical cues and special effects performed in the studio. Recent field recordings, like Winderin's, can help to concretize the adventures that we hear on Escape and give us a different way to know these ants. The ants in the story are most likely the species E. burchelli, which range from Brazil and Peru north to Mexico. Army ants like E. burchelli are best known for their movement in swarms and the industrious way in which they create temporary camps or bivouacs. Leiningen versus the ants presents the ant column as being 10 miles long and 2 miles wide, but E. burchelli swarms are more on the order of 10 meters long and 2 meters wide, and they move at a rate of about 20 meters an hour. The exaggerated scale of the story helps to explain the infrastructure that Leiningen creates to protect his plantation from this invading army. The commissioner returns to Leiningen's plantation, and he's given a tour of the fortifications that have been built to hold off the ants. The defenses Leiningen had devised were quite impressive. Surrounding three sides of the plantation like a huge horseshoe was a ditch 12 feet wide. The ends of this horseshoe-shaped ditch ran into the river which formed the fourth side of the plantation. At the upriver entrance to the ditch, Leiningen had constructed a dam by which the river water could be diverted into the ditch. A large hand wheel controlled the floodgate of the dam, and apparently Leiningen had ordered it open immediately after my arrival. Whereas we now approached the ditch and rode along it, I could see that it was nearly full. Ah, how do you like my first line of defense, Commissioner? It's reassuring, like a moat around a castle. <laughs> Unless the ants know how to build rafts, they won't reach the plantation. But this is only the outer moat. There's a better one than this. Now, come along. We'll go up to the high ground where the buildings are. We can get a view from there. Yeah, see the ditch? It's much smaller than the others. Yes, you've noticed how all the buildings are on this piece of high ground. The inner ditch surrounds them, and it's lined with concrete. 
You see the pipes leading into it? See those storage tanks on the hill? Petrol. We can throw up a wall of flame. Like Jean's tour of the lighthouse that we heard in Three Skeleton Key, this walkthrough of the plantation's defenses establishes the story as a narrative of infrastructural insulation. This is another nodal narrative set in a node in the network of global commerce. The node here is a plantation, the kind that produced the colonial commodities that would fill the ships that passed by Jean's lighthouse. In the next scene, we see how infrastructure, like Line Engine's defenses, can operate as a colonial strategy of control. Leinengen calls his workers to the plantation house, and he tells them of the approaching ants. I saw their faces go ashen with terror as I told them that the ants were coming. Finally, one of the men stepped forward. Blas, the foreman. Uh, Patron, uh, those ditches we dug last year, the pipe we put in the ground, that was for the ants? Yes, that was for the ants. The ants are mighty. We know what they can do. All of us think that you are mighty. Patron, we will stay with you and fight against the ants. Leinengen's building projects are the deciding factor in maintaining his labor force, and this shows us how infrastructure can function in a variety of ways in a story like this. It can set a narrative pattern of insulation, and it can also serve as a fantasy of what Brian Larkin calls the colonial sublime. Infrastructure used as a way to project colonial power. So we get a lot of information about the infrastructure that Leinengen has created to defend himself against the ants, but we aren't told very much about Leinengen's workers or the specific crop that's produced on Leinengen's land. Here again, the abstraction of adventure holds sway. The adventure needs a plantation, but what kind of plantation seems to make little difference. Given that the story is set in Brazil, Leinengen's crop might well have been coffee, and the addition of some concrete details about coffee production will help us to hear the story in new ways. Let's go back to the opening tagline for this episode of Escape, which refers to the ants as a deadly black army. That phrase hints that the exaggeration of the ant swarm from meters to miles might have something to do with the repressed knowledge of the African slave labor that drove plantation economies like the Brazilian coffee industry. By the year 1800, approximately one-third of Brazil's population was comprised of enslaved people. After the prohibition of the slave trade, the Brazilian government subsidized European immigrants, often from Germany and Italy, to replace slaves in the coffee fields. Some of those German and Italian immigrants rose to considerable wealth, the connection between slavery and German immigration in Brazil helps to situate the protagonist of Carl Stevenson's Leinengen versus the Ants in history. Stevenson himself was from Germany, 
and the story was originally published in German before being translated into English and published in Esquire magazine in 1938. So concrete details about coffee production make us hear Leinenjen's plantation and his struggle against the deadly black army in a new way, drawing out a history of human dislocation and racial oppression that submerged in the story. In fact, it might be more accurate to talk about this story in relation to an epoch called the Plantationocene rather than the Anthropocene, given the plantation economy's role in the rise of fossil fuel consumption and its devastating transformation of complex ecosystems into monocultures that are reliant upon slave labor. Before long, the ants arrive and surround the plantation. It was a sight I will never forget. Over the range of hills, as far as I could see, crept a darkening hem ever longer and broader until the shadows spread across the entire slope, then downward, downward, uncannily swift, and all the green herbage on the entire slope was being mowed as by a giant sickle, leaving only the vast moving shadow extending, deepening. To Leinengen's amazement, the ants do build rafts and cross the first moat. Here a grove of tamarind trees lined the far end of the ditch, and every tree swarmed with the crawling insects. But instead of eating the leaves, they were merely gnawing through the stems so that a thick green shower fell steadily to the ground. Looks like I underestimated them when I said they didn't have intelligence. What do you mean? I said if they wanted to get across, they'd have to have rafts. And that's just what they've got. Those leaves are their rafts. Leinigen and the workers retreat to within the circle of concrete as the ants continue their ceaseless advance. Now we'll see how our friends like a little heat. Flames from the ditch shot into the air, devouring ants by the millions. It was some time before the petrol burned down to the bed of the ditch, but when it did, the devils came back for more. So we've seen how the history of the plantation economy might have something to do with the exaggerated scale of the army ants in this story. This also helps to explain how the ants are depicted in military terms as a hostile invading army. The escape broadcast picks up on this theme, and you might have noticed how it accompanies the arrival of the ants with military music. The ants' musical cue is abstract in the same way that the spaces of adventure are abstract. The plot needs an invading army to set the stage for the hero's feats of courage, but which specific army is of little importance. We hear a different sonic representation of the ant swarm in a film adaptation of Stevenson's story called Naked Jungle, released in 1954. Thank you. 
When we compare these two versions of Lion Engine versus the Ants, we find that the film version, Naked Jungle, is a scale-making project that bends the narrative to the micro-level of interpersonal relationships among the human characters. We'll see something similar in the next episode when I talk about Alfred Hitchcock's version of The Birds. But for now, note that in Naked Jungle, the entire first hour of the film is dedicated to the relationship between Leinengen, here given the first name Christopher and played by Charlton Heston, and a woman named Joanna Selby, played by Eleanor Parker, who's married Leinengen without ever having met him. As played by the swaggering Charlton Heston, Leinengen here is less an aging and shabby eagle and more a brooding romantic leading man along the lines of Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. You're here and you're welcome. We do things by schedule in the tropics. We eat early, we go to bed early. Dinner's at seven. What time is bedtime? Whenever you wish, madam. I wouldn't want to upset your schedule. The ants don't arrive until the last 30 minutes of the film, and they function primarily as a means to develop the tempestuous relationship between Leinengen and Joanna. Downplaying the role of the ants was part of the studio's promotional strategy for the film. In the press kit, we read that the threat to Leinengen's plantation was supposed to be kept a secret from the public for as long as possible. Posters depict Heston and Parker in a heated embrace, and next to them, an abstract shape containing the word marabunta, which we learn in the film is supposedly an indigenous term for the swarm of ants. The film's tagline was, a living horror 20 miles long and two miles wide, which is intentionally ambiguous. The plan was to generate curiosity about the nature of the marabunta, and exhibitors were told to wait until opening day to divulge the secret behind this devastating force. So, Naked Jungle doesn't give the ants all that much screen time, but it does go further than escape in giving them a distinctive sound. The soundtrack indicates the presence of the ants with a high-frequency hissing sound that seems to depict both their great numbers and the destruction that they cause. We first hear that sound when Leinengen and the commissioner travel up the river to investigate sightings of the mysterious Marabunta. The commissioner is played in the film by William Conrad, who'd taken the role of Leinengen on escape. They realize that they're getting close to the swarm when they experience an eerie silence that indicates that all other living creatures in the jungle have either been destroyed or driven away. Something woke me up. We as well. It took us a while to realize what it was. The silence. I've never heard it before. The silence. The first images of the ants that we see emphasize their destructive power. A shot depicts the ants as a dark shadow spread across a jungle slope, mowing down all the green life in its path. Presumably, this is one of the meanings of the film's title, Naked Jungle.
Marabunta. Soldier ants. Billions and billions of them on the march. For generations, they stay in their anthills. And then for no reason, they start to move, gathering up others as they go, until they become a flood of destruction. How do you stop them? You don't. You just get out of their way. Later in the film, we see the ants devouring Leinigen's crops, while the hissing sound dominates the soundtrack. The message of Naked Jungle's sound design when it comes to the ants is that Ibercelli are a deadly, destructive force that brings a chilling silence to any environment that they inhabit. At one point, Leinigen says, yeah, Where they go, no life is left but their own. But remember that our motto for this show is the commissioner's warning. You don't know these ants. The more we know about these ants, the more we discover something quite different from the chilling silence in Naked Jungle. Let's listen again to Jana Windren's field recording of ants as a contrast to the post-war studio productions that we've been hearing. Rather than being a threat to their environment, army ants have been described as a keystone species in tropical forests because they have such a disproportionately large role to play in their ecosystem. For example, some jungle birds are so reliant on the swarm that the symbiotic relationship is embedded in their name, the ant birds. Migrating birds also gather around the ant swarm, and so do several species of butterfly that follow the ants to feed on bird droppings. So instead of an eerie silence or a narrow band of monophonic white noise, the multi-species assemblage around E. Burcelli produces a rich and complex sound. Two ant experts write that if you want to find a colony of army ants, the quickest way is to walk quietly through a tropical forest in the middle of the morning, listening. They describe the multiple layers of the sound you might hear the rattling and rustling of leaves as the ants seethe along, the staccato of insects jumping to get out of their way and knocking against leaves and wood, the buzzing of flies, and the calls of the ant birds.
we might contrast the complex interspecies polyphony of the Ibercelli swarm with the European colonial plantation with its mass production of a single crop. In the end, it seems to me that this is what Leinigen versus the ants is really about. It dramatizes a conflict between a polyphonic multi-species ecosystem and the industrial monoculture of the plantation. It was plantations like Leinigen's, of course, not E. Burcelli, that denuded the jungle environment so that no life was left but the commodity crop. So, now that we know a lot more about these ants, maybe we'll hear the end of the story a little differently. Remember that the ants had crossed the first moat, and Leinigen and his men had retreated to within the second one, and were hoping to stop their advance with a wall of burning petrol. When their supplies of fuel run out, Leinigen's only option is to make a desperate run through the swarm to open the floodgate on the river and drown the ants. I ran. I ran in long, equal strides with one thought, one sensation in my being. I must get through. Then I was there. I gripped the ant-covered wheel, but... <laughs> oddly, had I seized it when a horde of ants flowed over my hands and arms. I strained, and slowly the wheel turned. And turned more. The floodgate was swinging slowly shut. Then it was shut. And the water was rising rising behind the breakwater, closer to the top, closer, and then it was spilling over. Flooding of the plantation had begun. I let go of the wheel and started back through the ants. I was coated from head to foot with the fiends. Tongues of fire stabbed at me as they bit into my flesh. I almost lost my head with the pain as I ran, knocking ants from my body, brushing them from my bloody face. And then... I could see dimly that wall of flame at the ditch, but it was too far away. I could not last half that distance. I stumbled and fell. Felt myself being swarmed over, devoured. Tried to rise. A great weight. I couldn't die like that. To my feet. To my feet. Dragged myself forward. Draw the flame. The ditch, the ring of flame, closer now, only a little closer. This is a great example of one of Escape's action sequences, something that we'll be talking more about in a few episodes. But for now, just notice what an amazing performance this is by William Conrad, simultaneously narrating and embodying Leinengen's run. Overcoming great pain, Leinigen manages to vanquish the ants, but at the cost of flooding his plantation and even losing much of his own body, the commissioner notices that the ants have devoured parts of his flesh down to the bone.
When the episode ends, we're left to assume that Leinengen will eventually regain his strength and rebuild his plantation. The ants were gone, drowned, and Leinengen had won. But there's a more cynical interpretation. When I look at the high cost that Leinogen has paid, I'm not sure about his confidence in the power of the human brain to conquer the elements. As materialized in his plantation infrastructure, his brain was not all that successful in holding off the ants. Moreover, the ants come across as a pretty equal match to Leinogen in terms of problem-solving and tactical organization. The more concrete details we add to the story, the more it feels to me like a cautionary tale about misguided attitudes toward the environment. Some of those concrete details have connected the story to history, but they also make it speak to current environmental issues. Remember that the crop that's grown on Leinogen's plantation is left abstract, but I concretize the story by suggesting that it may well have been coffee. Environmental activists have been paying attention to South American coffee production and make a distinction between sun-grown and shade coffee. South American coffee bushes were traditionally cultivated in the shade, beneath a canopy of trees. But during the 1970s, international aid organizations began to encourage farmers to grow coffee in full sunshine. Sun-grown coffee is produced in the absence of a forest canopy and has a host of negative environmental consequences like forest reduction, erosion, and the increased use of pesticides. Environmental activists seek to preserve and encourage shaded coffee operations. Shade coffee is more sustainable for biodiversity because of the habitat it's providing. It's more sustainable for the broader environment because it's helping to prevent landslides, it's protecting water quality, and it's also sustainable if we think about communities because it's helping them to hopefully get better prices for the coffee they produce. Maintaining a forest canopy on coffee plantations preserves crucial habitat for migrating birds and for ants who help farmers by controlling pests that damage their coffee plants, and that reduces the need for chemical pesticides. We arrive then at a remarkable irony. The army ants that Leinengen was so keen to destroy may well have been more beneficial to his crop than all of those floodgates, ditches, and petrol pumps. The commissioner was right to chastise Leinengen for his ignorance of the ants. And now his warning, you don't know these ants, sounds different to me. It sounds like a way of saying that with the onset of the Anthropocene, we need to prevent multifaceted social and ecological systems from being replaced by monocultures like the plantation. It means that it's time to seek out intricate and plural states of life where lively forces interweave with one another. 
Imagine then another version of the story where Leiningen responds to the commissioner's warning about the ants by walking quietly through the tropical forest in the middle of the morning, listening. ESC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich.edu. Thanks for listening.